So we are going to, with this chapter, this study today, last part of 11 and into 12, chapter 12, it is a uh, transition chapter, what's happening here, because when we get into 13 for the rest of the year, that's where the gospel is going up to the uttermost ends of the earth. So in this chapter, Acts 11, verse 19, through the, through, uh, the entire chapter 11, oh, chapter 12, I got a typo on there, chapter 12, it's kind of an idea of God's church is growing and spreading and it's going to do, the gospel is going out into the world and, it's, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Um, it's almost like letting us know that, and if you try to fight against it, if you kick against the goads, like God told Saul, it's, it's folly to fight with God. And we're going to see what happens to Herod on what a horrible folly it is to oppose God. So in this last part of chapter 11, in verse 19, verse 19 is very similar now that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word. Very similar writing to over in Acts 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it's like a book ends on this here. Stephen, that happened, they were scattered and burst out of Jerusalem all right, into Judea and Samaria. And so we're seeing here at 19, they have burst out, and they are outside of Jerusalem now, and they're, they're reaching out to outside the Jewish population. Um, and it's very widespread. Over the Roman Empire, Antioch was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. But notice what it says in verse 20. It says they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. No one except Jews. They reached out to the Jewish culture. So it was only to Jews that they were teaching uh, and reaching out to and sharing the gospel. Cornelius was a Gentile who came to them. But this church in Antioch is the first time that the believers went to, purposely went to a pagan group of people, a group of people that they didn't want to have anything to do with the gospel. Okay, so this was, this was going over a new boundary here with the spread of the gospel. So these men from Cyrus and Cyrene in verse 20, even though they don't have names, they were considered pretty much the first missionary church, you know, the first missionaries to reach out. And the church that they established in Antioch is considered the first great missionary church of the New Testament. These men in verse 20 deliberately went to Antioch to speak with the Hellenists, okay, about the Lord Jesus. They were purposely determined to reach out to the Gentile world. So this is a new, this is something new. This is kind of, we're breaking through here. You can see God's plan when he says he's going to go outside of Jerusalem and into all the world. It's, it's happening. And we see in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Turned to the Lord, got saved, became believers in Jesus Christ, about face turn. They had faith, they had repentance. And so the news about all this gets back to Jerusalem. 
Everyone's talking about it. Stuff travels. Not as quickly, but they all... Boo, 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 boo. Do you know what's happening in Antioch? Boo, boo, boo. They're, they're talking to these pagans. These Gentiles are up there. Who are these guys from Syria? They're telling these people about these Gentiles, about Jesus. What, whatever's going on. And so the Jews in Jerusalem, the believers, were very curious about this. Okay? So they send Barnabas. The report comes back to their ears in the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas was probably a good one to pick, because Barnabas was the one who kind of extended his hand to Saul when they were not believing who he was. Remember, he was a Levite, and he was known for generosity when he sold that land, and he was known as a, a, a person of encouragement. Um, and so he had different... He had traits and a personality about himself that would be very, very good to be the one to send. And so he goes, and he witnesses God's hand at work. When he gets there, he was glad because he saw the grace of God. It's kind of cool when you go to a church or someplace or a group of people, and you can see the grace of God there, can't you? There's just a, this is the real deal here. You're not going to really see it with physical eyes, but it's just an experience. It's about a kindred spirit. It's about soulmates or whatever that he could really see God's hand was working in this group of people. And so, what does he do? He exhorts them, and it's not a negative word. Exhorting means encouraging, and that's what Barnabas was pretty much known for. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Okay, so he was trying to encourage them and everything to hang in there. And in verse 24, I kind of thought that was a weird phrase. Why on earth would they say he was a good man? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A good man. Good man. It seems like a word that just is like a throwaway word, good man. But when you sit and ponder it, I kind of want that on my gravestone, that I was a good woman. I want to, I think it's an attribute to, to really, we need to stop and ponder. When you look it up, it's like good versus evil. Two options out there, good or evil. And if you really go a little bit further, you realize that goodness is what? It's one of those nine, I got a wart, so I'm I'm just going to tell you about it now, and I'll go like this, okay? Nine, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's an attribute of God. We are not naturally good people. No one is good, no, no one but God, right? And so to be considered a good man um, is, is, is what took place here because he was going in this town, Antioch, and we'll We'll get an understanding of what Antioch's all about. Um, because it was such a pagan, horrible, horrible town. Um, it was utterly corrupt. It was no, you know, it was a lot of commercialism, businesses and stuff like that. It was kind of bringing the worlds together and stuff. And But there was no sense of the gospel there at all. It was a very pagan culture. Um, ritual prostitution, child abuse. I mean, it was just a hellhole there. And so to be a good man in a town of very evil all around him, they're pointed out here, he's filled with the Spirit, and a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas is there, and he's encouraging people. Um, He's telling them to, you know, yes, keep with your faith and everything, but he wasn't a teacher. He's got these gifts. He's got the gifts of encouragement. He's got the fruit of the Spirit of being a good man. And, and, and And a good man, an encourager, is going to see the best in people. I think that's what I liked about this. Not, not a critical, oh, they do this, not a gossip like that, but someone who's a good person is going to see the good in others and want to encourage and bring that out too. So Barnabas realizes that he's encouraging them, but he's not a teacher. So what does he do? He looks for Saul. He finds Saul, and God's spirit is directing him with this because we know Saul is going to be the great teacher, isn't he? And so he goes and finds Saul. He has to look all over for him. He goes to Tarsus, which is 100 miles from Antioch. And we're not just taking, getting on a plane and flying. We're saddling up a donkey. We're going by foot 100 miles in search of Saul. Why is Saul in Tarsus? Well, we know back in chapter 9, um, in verse 23, 28 and 30, that Saul, they sent him to... Um, Tarsus because they were going to kill him. He was back in Jerusalem and they were seeking to kill him. Um, And so the brothers learned this and they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So he was in Tarsus probably about 12 years for his own protection. But while he was there, he was studying, he was learning, he was growing, he was, God was preparing him for what was going to happen in Antioch, which was going to be the, the great first missionary church in the kingdom of God on earth here. So he's looking for him, and it's not just a looking for him, it's a seeking out, it's a laborious search for Saul. But we know God's directing him, so we know he's going to find him, and he does find him. And together they taught many in Antioch. Um, And Antioch, later on, our history books tell us that it became a great center for great teaching and preaching. So there was the beginnings of a very solid church in Antioch. We also find out from this that Antioch, the disciples, were first called Christians. So the Christian phrase kind of came off not just for Messianic Jews, Jews who became believers in Jesus, but, but Gentiles that became, became followers of Christ. All right. While they're there, while this church is growing... Many are becoming believers in this pagan, pagan uh, culture there. The church is planted. And we see in verse 27, they had prophets at that time also. And a prophet came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And if any of you are having a problem with that phraseology, I'll just take a side note here because I had a problem with it because you look on your map and Antioch is north of Jerusalem. But Janie drug out her... uh, elevation thing, and Jerusalem is higher in elevation than Antioch. So in their words, they came down to Antioch, okay? (laughs) You have to ponder these things. Why is that in there? Because I know the word wasn't wrong. Um, So they came down to Antioch with the news that there was going to be a great famine all over the world. The world at that time was going to have this great famine. So this is an opportunity now with this church, when they decide, you know, that this, they're out there, they're becoming a real church, real believers and stuff, and the church in Jerusalem is going to be suffering from this, this famine. The little church, the little group of believers in Antioch got together, and they acted like Christians. 
they, they were generous. They got together a gift to go out and send to them. Now, these are Gentiles sending resources to the Jews. This is why this is huge here. This is probably the first time in recorded history where one group of people, one race of people, went over a boundary, a barrier, and, and, and generously gave to another group of people, ethnic group of people. Because in the ancient world, you were in your own little clan, okay? You don't, you don't intermingle. You don't need anything else. So the church was doing something new. Jesus was doing something new. You weren't just taking care of your own. You were taking care of other believers. The church was a, a, a light to the whole world. So when they responded this way and sent, sent gifts and resources to their Jewish believers in Jerusalem... This was a huge Christian virtue, and they realized, wow, this is the real deal here. This is a real deal. Remember, the church, originally all Jewish, now it's expanding into the Gentile world. God's plan is happening. His will will be done. When he said that we're going to be witnesses unto the ends of the earth, he means it, and it's happening. All right, so this takes us now. Oh, and they send the gifts back with Barnabas and Saul. So I'm sure the stories that they shared to the believers in Jerusalem were just phenomenal. And it was just like, there's so much that not in Scripture, you have to kind of sit back and ponder, you know, the reports that they gave about the church in Antioch and the people that were saved and, you know, the, the prostitutes caught up in ritual prostitution and all the slimy business deals and all the pagan stuff that, and these people became believers in Jesus Christ and turned to the Lord. Story after story after story of hundreds of people in Antioch where this happened. They were on fire. Share stuff like that. So let's look at chapter 12. Chapter 12 now is our last chapter before we get into chapter 13, and that's a breaking point in the book for the, you know, where Paul actually takes over here. And we're introduced here to Herod. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Herod, there were a lot of Herods in Scripture. This is one of the king Herods. He happened to be the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the ruler during the birth of Jesus, Matthew 2. So he had some evil genes in there. He's also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was in part of the trial of Jesus from Luke 23. So it was his nature, it was his genealogy to just harass the Jews and have a hatred for them. So it was like almost a politically popular thing to do. And we see in verse 2 that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We killed him with the sword. It probably meant that he beheaded him. And the reaction he got from that when he beheaded James was, oh, this really excites the crowd. I can become a popular guy by this. And why were the Jews so, so happy about this? It was not the Jewish believers who were happy. It was the Jews who were unbelievers who were opposing the truth because they didn't like the fact that Gentiles could become believers without being converted to Judaism. 
They, that was just a, really a thorn in their side. And so to start taking out any kind of Christian was a good thing. But also it was, James was the first to die of the twelve. It almost breaks the little bubble, maybe, of illusion that they had that they were divinely protected from any kind of persecution. And they weren't, as we find, as we know now, this side of this historical account that they all had pretty rotten deaths. But James was the first one to be uh, martyred. It also fulfills what Jesus had told him in Mark 10. Mark 10, 35 James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus, said, Teacher, we want to do for you whatever you ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. You are, are, you are, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, Oh, yeah, we're able, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand is left for somebody else. So he's basically fulfilling this prophecy here that he got, drank the cup, and was martyred. So, Herod's all excited. Stir up the crowd. They like Herod because he's killing off these believers, these Christians he's killing off. And so he arrests Peter. And in verse 4, And when he had seized him, Peter, and put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. He arrests Peter. He assigns him to a high security of guard. Now, usually you've just got one, one guard there, you're chained to one guard. For Peter, they had a chain, on both arms were chained to another guard, and they had two guards standing outside the cell thing that made, that's a squadron of four, and then they rotated it through a 24-hour period of four. So he had four men on him all the time instead of just having one. So he thought he had this guy securely locked down. He was, he was going to be... He's not getting out of this, okay? And these, these Roman guards were like, Ugh. you know, Peter was just a little fisherman, right? These Roman guards here that he was chained to. So he's in jail, we find out. Kept in prison, in verse 5, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter is in prison. And the believers were earnestly praying for him. Earnest prayer is defined as stretching out all they can for something. It's a term used in, it's a medical term for describing the stretching of a muscle to its limit. It's almost like you're pushing as hard as you can. You're just, you're making it work as, as to the maximum potential that it has. They are praying for Peter. And Dr. Luke uses the same word of earnest prayer when he describes Jesus' prayer in the garden in Luke 22. Now, they didn't sweat drops of blood, but it's that same heartfelt, just flat on your face, praying, petitioning to God. Um, 
It's not an attempt to persuade God or reluctant, but it's a demonstration of their passion um, pleading to God, all right? We find out that these prayers are going to be answered, don't we? Now, there's several things in here. I'm going to read through this, and then we're going to come back and pull them out. So there he is in verse 6. Herod was about to bring him out. That very night, Peter was asleep. Peter's sleeping. Now, we just know James was arrested, and he was beheaded. So Peter's probably thinking, I'm going to get it, and it's going to be, you know, Passover's over, you know, over, so, you know, tomorrow's the day I'm probably going to lose my head. And he's sleeping. He's sleeping so soundly that the angel's got to go poke him. Hey, get up. Get your robe on. Got to go. So I'm wondering, as, as we look at this and, and the astonishment that they have when he finally gets out and he goes to the door and he's saying, hey, it's me, it's me, and little Rhoda's there saying, oh, my gosh, he's there, and they're so shocked. I wonder if their earnest prayer for him, they, they didn't even think that it would be to rescue him, but maybe just earnest prayer for comfort, maybe earnest prayer for, you know, this must be terrible for him. We, he, we can't be there to comfort him. Just be with our brother Peter and just let him just know that he's going to see you and just, you know, calm his heart down because that prayer was answered because he was sleeping, Right? I think that if they were really earnestly asking God to rescue him, I don't think they would have been shocked. But here's what I take from this. He was, they were praying for him, for their brother Peter, to be comforted, be with him, God, whatever, whatever. And then when God does abundantly more than we ask, I love that verse, don't you? He does abundantly more than we could ever ask he does that all the time. Peter learned during this time to cast his cares upon the Lord. You know, he writes about that later in one of his letters. So he was truly at peace with God while he slept there. All right, so we go down there. This, I love this part. Peter was sleeping. Angel wakes him up. A light shines in the cell. Now, this light doesn't wake up the guards. Did you think that, I mean, what, this big bright light doesn't wake up the guards and half the people there? Bright light shone in the cell, strikes Peter on the side to wake him up, get up quickly, and boom, what happens? Chains fall off. These guys are still stacking the Z's next to him, not going anyplace. Get, dress yourself, put your sandals on, and he did so, and he's like in this state of surrealism, like, is this really happening to me? And he's doing what the angel's telling him to do. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he's going, okay, almost in this half-sleep mode. Maybe the light was so bright he couldn't even, okay, yeah, I'll do whatever you say, you know, whatever. And he's going, following him out. And they went out. He didn't know what was going on. He thought he was seeing a vision. But then they passed the first and the second guard, Remember the, the four guards that they had? passed them. These guards must have been awake. Maybe the other two guards were awake. I don't know. But they didn't see anything. Walk past these guys. They come to an iron gate leading into the city. An iron gate. Iron is heavy. 
Lots of these gates, it took several men to open up. And what happens? Automatic. The gate opens on its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left. And then Peter comes to his senses and says, Whoa, pinch, pinch. (laughs) Where am I? What is going on? And then he realizes that truly God had sent an angel to rescue him from the hand of Herod. And when he realized this, he went to tell his fellow believers. Now we can stop and ask, why did God save Peter and not James? Why did he let James die? We put a lot of emphasis on on life. And when death comes, we fight it. It's a natural occurrence to fight it. But many times our death is used to glorify God too. For, For whatever reason, we don't know. We can think, oh, because he wasn't done with Peter yet, and Peter was going to go on and do all these great things. But you know what, ladies? Once it gets down here, and, it, and after he goes and he tells everybody that he's here, tells them what's going on, it says in the end of verse 17, then he departed and went to another place. We never hear about Peter anymore in the book of Acts. So it wasn't like God was saving him for all this stuff. He did go on to write a lot of letters and do a lot of stuff, but in this book of Acts, it's not a list of all these phenomenal things that he did. So however long our life is, it's a matter of living every single moment for the glory of God, isn't it? And even in our death, um, as a matter of fact, maybe someday I'll share it. I've shared it before. The death of my sister-in-law at the age of 23 was something that really impacted me and made me get my act together. Her death. I was 23 at the same time. She died, and it was, it was a life changer for me, okay? So you never know how long, you know, what God's doing here. We, we can't question those. We have to take those things by faith. So another little thing about prayer here. Um... He goes to the house. They realize it's, you know, him and let him in and and everything. And she's all overwhelmed with joy and stuff like that. And he tells them what's going on. The amazing thing that it was that the angel had come and set him, rescued him and set him free. So what a great testimony. What a great pump up to that church, too, to be able to see that. Wow, this is, we are on the winning side here. The winning side. Their prayers were important. It wouldn't be mentioned in here if earnest prayer wasn't important. So let's just pause for a moment and take a look at that. Peter's deliverance was given in response to their prayers. It wasn't like God had to be manipulated or anything like that. God is sovereign. God knew he was going to save Peter. God knew about all this kinds of stuff. He knows how Peter is going to die and what Peter is going to do in life. You know, so why do we need to pray? Why do we need to ask God for something? God's going to do it anyways, you know. But God is sovereign, and he does things through means. And one of the means he works through is prayer, okay? Another means he works through is witnessing. I'm going to use that as a parallel example. It's not like if we don't pray, it's not going to happen. But God allows us to participate in his plan, 
We are his witnesses. He is going to, we are going to be his witnesses unto the earth, and it's going to be through us that this is going to happen. It's going to be through his church that his plan is going to come about. So our prayers for things, our witnessing for things, are, are, are important. We just can't blow it off and say, oh, God's going to do whatever God is going to do or whatever. That's just a cop-out. Don't you want to be a part of something like this? This is exciting to be, to be praying for something and, and then to see, whoa, look at that's going to happen. And we, I just trust God and we're going to accept whatever, but we're going to be a part of it. And we're going to be talking to God and ganged up. And when you're in a huddle and you're talking to people and talking about a plan or whatever, I mean, sometimes a plan, but at least you're together, united, and you're talking about stuff and you're discussing things and, and, and then God moves and you're right there with them. We're part of the church. We're part of the body of Christ. So our prayers, how we communicate to God, how we get communication from him through scripture, that's all in that huddle. We're all on the same team. I'm using an analogy of football. Slipped into that. Now, if we didn't pray um, about something, and we were called to pray about something, and we didn't, we just kind of flaked off and, and let it go, does that mean God's plans are going to be foiled? No, it doesn't mean, you know, we're going to, God's plans are going to be foiled. But what's going to happen is we're going to be the ones that are going to miss out on the blessing. Because God has work for us lined up before the foundations of the, of the planet was formed, before we were even made. He knew what each of us were going to do in life. He had these acts, these works, these deeds for us to do. We have free will, and we can do them or not do them. If we do them, there's rewards for us. If we don't do them, God's plan isn't foiled. It'll happen through some other means, but we miss out on a reward. We miss out on a reward. We miss out on the growth of that, the sanctification of that. Um, that's kind of how, how it works. I, I hope I'm explaining it well. So their prayers didn't change the mind of God. The prayers help them participate in the great miracle that that was. And it stirred, it ruffled some feathers, okay? Ruffled a lot of feathers. It says there, verse 18, Now in that day, when that day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. That's an understatement if we've ever heard it. No little disturbance. There was hell that was going to be paid and um, because Herod got very, very angry, okay? After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. And then they went down from Judea to Syria and spent some time there. So it was a customary thing with Rome with the Roman soldiers, that if they, if an, if a, one of their um, prisoners escapes, that those guards got the penalty that that prisoner was going to get, and they were going to kill Peter. So these guys got, they got killed. Pretty, pretty devastating for them. But maybe some of them became believers through all that too. I mean, really, you know. Um, okay. God's power cannot be contested. There's no competition against God. Herod thought he had Peter 
just really just in a nice little package. It was going to be a big day for him that next day when he was going to kill him and he was going to grow in popularity. And it just came back to just, it's almost like God's laughing again, isn't it? You know, we get that little thing, that's God's laughing. His will will be done. All right. The final part of this chapter 12 is almost like icing on the cake for God's gospel going out and those who oppose it, what happens to them. Those who oppose the gospel are not winners, okay? Herod, what happens to him in his death is almost a little bit of an illustration of what happens to God's opposition, isn't it? Because those who oppose the gospel, those who die in their sins, are going to be rotten in hell. Worms and all those kinds of things. So Herod was very opposed to the expansion of the gospel, okay? And he's on a rampage now. He's filled with anger. He's angry at these people, all right? And remember, there's a famine going on also. So the people are getting very hungry, and they need to come to him. They're dependent on his country for some food. Um, And so Herod, who's probably just so narcissistically involved, you know, into himself and all of his, you know, crazy mindset that he has... People are coming to him asking for some food. So he gets it in his head on an appointed day in verse 21. that he put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. He puts on his royal robes. Other historical accounts, Josephus talks about how these royal robes were almost mirrored, almost glittering, shiny, silver garments, truly magnificent, and he marches out there with them in the morning sun. What's that going to do? That's going to blind people. It's going to be like, whoa, look at that spectacle. He's a god. He's like this, you know, this is an amazing thing. These were poor people that were starving coming, and here he's up there on his little throne in this, all this glittery and gloss and just up there, and he's talking, and it's not even saying what he's talking about, but they're just, in, just praising him and just saying these wonderful things and enjoying all this stuff, and he's just taking it in, taking it in, taking it in taking it all in. Isaiah 14 talks about, O day star of the dawn who fell from heaven, Satan who got thrown out of heaven, who said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the might mount of assembly in the far reaches of the of the north and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The five I wills of Satan. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. This is a picture of that in Isaiah 14. He's up there. He's going to do this. I'm going to, you know, you're going to come. I'm going to give you some scraps of food. And I'm, blah, 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 I will, I will, I will. I'm so great. And what happens to him? A horrible death. A horrible, horrible death. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God and was eaten by worms, and breathes his last. says it took five days for him to die. What happened? Did he have a cyst in there from some worm? We don't know how it happened. 
We just know that five days dying of some kind of worms eaten from the inside out was probably a very agonizing death. Um, Corrupt from the inside, severe pain in his belly for five days, and then he died. Herod tried to fight against God. He tried to take God's glory for himself. He tried to stop the spread of the gospel. And this is what happens. Herod is not in charge Man is not in charge. God will win. His, his gospel will go out. God's work continued to grow. We see it in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Nothing's going to stop it. We're on the winning team. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service after they brought all the supplies down there and they um, came back bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we have Mark introduced in here now. Back from their relief that they took the food down to, um, they get Mark and come back. When we hear the historical account of God's church, I hope it empowers you. Doesn't it? Oh, good. <laughs> because we live in dire times, and it seems like the, ba- the black hats are winning, shutting us down, can't sing, can't do this. Can't- and you know what? God's truth will prevail. 